reading is from Acts 6, verses 8 to 15, and then 49 to 59. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandrus, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who (coughs) testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then there's Stephen's speech, which is very long, so we're not reading. But let's turn to this. <laughs> That's what I got from. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Um, the most. Oh, the conclusion of Stephen's speech. The most high does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Thanks, Amber. Is this this phone up here? That's recording, yeah. Okay, great. No, not great, but anyway, thank you. How are we all? We had a really great night last night. I hope you guys did too. As, as Graham said, we spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to take a photo. Um, but it was great team bonding and um, we're looking forward to the next one already. I'd like you to take a few moments to have a think. Reflect quietly to yourselves. What gives you the deepest pleasure in life? What, have you found anything that ex- actually gives you really deep pleasure? Now be honest with yourself here. And I'm not going to ask you to tell me what they are. So just take a few moments to think. What is it that gives you the most pleasure in life?
And I'm going to get you to park those thoughts together and to come back to them. Because what does Peter have to do with the story of Stephen? You might be wondering. And it's a good question to ask. What do we make of the story of Stephen? It's a pretty tough passage. And I have spent two weeks going, oh, do I really have to talk on this? And um, anyway, God, I felt God has put something on my heart to share. So um, we're going to get into it. But before we do, let's just pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are here with us and you are ministering to us in our hearts. Thank you that you meet us where we're at. Thank you that there is something that you want to say to every one of us today. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to receive your word, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your presence. Amen. It's quite warm up here, just a second. about the ballerina. <clears throat> so this passage from Acts, as I said, wasn't an easy one to tackle. And the story of Stephen has been both um, inspiring and terrifying for a lot of my Christian life. But as I dug into it and researched, um, I found that there's three specific questions that the Lord um, asks of us. They're not easy questions. They're actually quite uncomfortable. Um, but there's actually also a really beautiful story of hope. So um, we're going to dive into these questions and then see what it means for us, and we're going to be touching on life's deepest pleasure. So when Stephen appears on the scene in chapter 6 of Acts, now where am I pointing this? (coughs) Oh yes, this was the pleasure slide. When Stephen appeared in chapter 6, the Church of Jerusalem at this point is 5,000 people, and the 12 disciples are still the only leaders of that church. So we think we might have a tough job. Um, having a congregation this size, but 5,000 is a lot of people. And they've been fairly relaxed in their style to that point. They've been meeting in houses, they've been having meals together, um, and they didn't really have anything official going on. Uh, But when they got to 5,000, the practical needs of the people became quite clear. Uh, And we first met Stephen, I didn't get Amber to read it because it was just going to be far too long, but in chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that there are some widows and the vulnerable people of, of the congregation are not being looked after, they're not being cared for. They've just got some practical needs that are just going unnoticed. So the 12 disciples had to get together and have their first official church meeting. <laughs> and um, they needed help getting food on the table. They needed to organise a food roster, a meal roster. And the 12 disciples themselves felt called to teach the word. And it's very easy when you read the choosing of the seven, which is the, the way it's often phrased in many um, of your Bibles, that the disciples felt that they were above serving tables or above organising food rosters, and that's not the case at all. It's just that they felt specifically called to preach and teach, and they needed some equally godly, anointed people to help with the practical pastoral needs of the community. And so they prayerfully discerned seven people, and Stephen is one of those. And we are introduced to him as being a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So we can see that someone involved in pastoral care in terms of serving practical needs of people, they have to be just as filled with the Holy Spirit as anyone uh, teaching and preaching. So anyway, the gospel continues to spread and the church continued to grow. And then in the next section, which is where we um, heard Amber pick up, uh, the Jewish officials began to resent Stephen because he was obviously operating in the Spirit's power 
And he went about his, as he went about his work, he actually began to perform signs and wonders, which is what we saw the other apostles doing, as the Spirit worked through him. And these Jewish officials were getting their noses out of joint. They didn't, but the annoying thing for them is they didn't, have a, they didn't stand a chance against um, st- the wisdom that the Holy Spirit had given Stephen. And so they were getting really upset because they couldn't win any argument with him. And so what did they do? They played the dirty on him. And they conspired amongst each other, which kind of, in a way, that reminded me of the story of Daniel. How can we bring this guy down? Let's throw some mud on him. Let's spread some rumours that actually aren't true. So that the Sanhedrin heard. And um, that's, what it, that's what happened. So he was brought before the priest and questioned. And what's amazing is instead of defending himself, he gave them a history lesson. History which they knew because it was their history. Now, we're not going to go into the details of the speech. It's very long. Um, but one of the key points that Stephen makes in his speech of response to the Sanhedrin is that things have changed with Jesus. Moses' law hasn't been replaced or discarded, but it has been fulfilled. See, Stephen recognised that Jesus was the Messiah. He recognised that God was not confined to a temple. And he's never, he never has been. If you think about Moses and you think about Joseph, Solomon and David, Abraham, all of them encountered the presence of God outside the temple. So um, Moses, the burning bush, that was holy ground, wasn't it? But the Jewish people were fixated on this idea that God was in the temple and that the temple was the only holy place to worship God. And so when Stephen comes along and when Jesus came along and said the temple is no longer necessary, man, they got their knickers in a twist. The Holy Spirit instead has come to dwell amongst, our, amongst us, his people. And that's exactly what we've been talking about, isn't it? The Holy Spirit now comes to dwell in us. He, he is not confined to a physical temple. But for the Jewish people, that was what their, their whole lives were built around, this temple and this Torah, the temple and, and the law that God gave Moses. Because they didn't recognise who Jesus was. They didn't understand that God was now God of the whole of mankind, and he dwells in the universe. He's not confined to a temple. So um, I hope you can kind of understand the basic argument of, or hope I've communicated the basic argument of Stephen, um, which was basically what Jesus was saying. Um, And then to really drive the hammer home, Stephen proclaims that the Jewish leaders are like their very ancestors who refused to listen to God, the Israelites. Uh, they refused to listen to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And he uses the same language that Moses uses, you stiff-necked people. So they were really, they were like hornets at this point. And they, um, as we heard, they clamped their hands over their ears and took off out of the city, dragging Stephen with them. They believed that following the law was the only way to salvation, not Jesus So the way they killed him was completely illegal. Uh, The Romans had actually taken away the power of the Sanhedrin um, to stone people, but uh, the way they did it was not the way it was supposed to be done anyway. It was more of a mob lynching. So the whole thing was just really unfair. And the remarkable thing, of course, I don't know if any of you have picked this up yet, but Stephen's trial and death is very like that of Christ. He is falsely accused like Jesus, and instead of defending himself when he was accused, he preaches the gospel. He's taken out of the city to be killed like Jesus, and as he dies, he utters words 
that are remarkably similar to those of Jesus. He cries out to God like Jesus did on the cross, Lord, receive my spirit. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we know that Jesus himself said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. (coughs) Now this is not at all coincidental. Luke, who wrote the story, uh, who wrote Acts and also wrote Luke, is intending to make it clear that Stephen has not only shared in the life of Christ, living and serving as Christ had called him to, but also died as Christ, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, which is the whole church we are also called to do. I told you I didn't really want to preach this sermon. But when we look at scripture, we see that Paul speaks a lot about this. He was there, now Paul was the one, um, obviously called Saul at that point, he was there affirming the death of Stephen, but little did he know he was about to meet Stephen's God um, himself in a very dramatic way just a couple of chapters later. And it really influenced his teaching. And in his letter to the Philippians later on, once he had obviously become <coughs> a champion of the faith, he wrote, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. See, Paul understood that the call to become like Christ was to enter into the suffering of Christ too. He even celebrated it. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. And let's be honest, who wants to hear this? This is tough. <clears throat> we don't like hearing that we will enter into the sufferings of Christ as we follow him, or maybe it's just me. And now thankfully this doesn't mean that we're going to die in the same way that Jesus and Stephen did, <clears throat> but it fits with the rest of scripture when we are told that as we enter into the life that Christ calls us, we are expected to pick up the cross and share in his sufferings. And the reality of this will look different for all of us. But this is the first challenging question that the story raises for us. Are we prepared for the suffering? Are we prepared for persecution, reaction and opposition? Now Michael and Graham have already um, talked about when the spirit moves there is a reaction. And the life of a Christian, a true Holy (coughs) Spirit-filled Christian, is going to attract persecution and suffering. And this is a really difficult truth for us to embrace, isn't it? So I'm just going to have to drink my way through the sermon because I've got a bit of a funny throat. It's difficult because we are immersed in a world, if you think about our world and our culture, we are programmed to avoid suffering and pain at all costs. We We ignore it, we try to control it, we avoid it. And that's really what this euthanasia bill is about, isn't it? Controlling suffering and avoiding it. The antidote, the world says, is to seek pleasure. Have as many fun experiences as possible. If life feels boring or you're feeling down, go book a holiday. Go and medicate yourself with pleasurable experiences. Go shopping, find some adventures. Find that perfect spouse and you'll be happy. Have those kids and you'll be happy. Buy that house (coughs) and you will have the greatest pleasure. Now, I'm not saying any of these things are bad things. 
But when they are the definition of pleasure, they actually fall far short of the greatest pleasure of life that we can experience, which I'm going to get to in a moment. And unfortunately, these aren't these good things aren't the only way that people medicate their pain and their suffering in our world. Pornography, extramarital affairs, drinking, drugs, gluttony, hedonistic habits, all things that promise great experiences to avoid suffering, boredom, <coughs> and promise pleasure, which seems to be life's greatest goal in the secular world. But being called into the life of Christ means we need to recognise that we are also called into the sufferings of Christ and the death of Christ, dying to our selfish selves, laying down our personal desires and removing ourselves from the centre of our existence and placing God at the centre. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of people, many Christians included, (coughs) stop and turn away at this point. They think it's too hard No, I don't want that, thanks. This isn't what I signed up for. Yeah, sure, let's let's, uh, share in the life of Christ, but not the death of Christ. But what they have missed is that the Christian life, while having this sobering invitation, also offers the deepest, greatest, most satisfying pleasure of all. Pleasure deeper than any experience, any thrill, any joy that the world promises. Pleasure that will never ever fade. And pleasure that will overcome even the desire to defend one's life in the face of persecution. Have you ever looked forward to something so much? (coughs) An experience or the acquiring of something and then been a bit disappointed when it's kind of finished or you've got the thing? Whatever it was has promised more than it's actually delivered. I've had those experiences. Actually, quite a few times. We went to Italy before we had Anya. And I was so excited um, about the trip. Imagine gelatos, <coughs> cute cobbled streets, historic towns. Graham was dreaming of bowls of big olives, Mediterranean foods, amazing shopping, lots of time to relax. <coughs> and we actually kind of came home a little bit disappointed. Don't get me wrong, we had a great time together. And we're really glad we did it. We've often talked about how pleased we were able to do that um, before we had kids. It'll probably be another good 20 to 30 years before we even get to do anything like that again. But along with all the good things that we experienced, there were rip-off artists and crowds and overpriced food that was actually terrible and worse than food in New Zealand. (laughs) Like, honestly, the Italian that I've had here has been amazing and better than some of the Italian that we experienced here. Um, We both got sick. It wasn't the bliss that I had imagined or had hoped it would be. And apart from the lovely memories, which we still talk about, actually, I forgot. Here's uh, two of our photos. Uh, in Venice and in Corsica. I think Graham's eating wild boar there. <coughs> um, it didn't help when we got home that it was a wet Waikato winter. <laughs> but the tempting thing to do then at that point is to think, oh, let's just book another trip. The next one will be better more satisfying (coughs) and that's what the world keeps telling us to do keep pursuing a new experience the next one will be better but scripture tells us that it isn't world travel or fun trips or getting drunk that will satisfy us or will give us the greatest pleasure it isn't even finding a spouse 
or having those 2.5 children with that white picket fence <coughs> in the Labrador Valley <coughs> that will give us the greatest pleasure in life. Scripture tells us that the greatest pleasure we can experience is an intimate relationship with God. A relationship with God that is so deep and so genuine that life's pleasures actually fade in comparison. God created all good things, but we know that he is the source of the purest and the fullest pleasure. He's actually programmed this into our DNA. And it's a desire that only he can fill, and lots of people are searching for it because they haven't found it. C.S. Lewis identifies this brilliantly. The real want for heaven in relationship with God is present in us, but many of us don't recognise it. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they don't quite keep to their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no longings can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. And we see this pleasure of God, the only thing that can actually satisfy us and not leave us longing for more, placed above all else in life experienced and proclaimed throughout scripture. David wrote in Psalm 16, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You make known to me the path of life. (coughs) You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Joy in your presence. He's he's talking about joy that cannot be um, found anywhere else. And in Psalms 84... Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your presence, God, than a thousand doing any travel <coughs> and any family member and any experience that this world will, will um, promise. And we've actually printed out this psalm for you to take home <coughs> and, and meditate on and put it on your mirror and look at it in the mornings if you find it helpful. And I have a hunch that there are many Christians in this world who don't understand this truth, and perhaps even some here, who don't know and experience this deep relationship with Christ, and so that when life gets tough, we're tempted, or we do walk away. We only see the call to suffering and not the deeper joy it promises us that enables us to get through that suffering. But we need to be prepared for life to be tough sometimes. Who here has had an amazing, easy life? Yeah, no one. (laughs) Alison here. (laughs) Scripture never promises anywhere that life will be easy. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've heard, I won't go down that trip, <clears throat> but I, I have heard a lot of times that um, life's going to be great with God. Just join up with the church and life will be awesome. I'm sorry, but that's not biblical. <laughs> and um, being called into the life of Christ is challenging, to say the least. But God promises peace. And he promises that his presence far surpasses anything that we go through. And he gives us deep joy to walk through those hard times. <coughs> and that's what will get us through that suffering. And this is the hope that we see in the story of Stephen. 
He could have backed down, shut up, and walked away alive. But he was so in love with God, he was so empowered by the Holy Spirit's presence that he understood sharing in the life of Christ also meant sharing in the death of Christ, that he continued instead not to defend himself but to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim the gospel, giving up his life and literally sharing in the death of Christ. And we'll look at the very end of how him doing that changed church history. The story of death, um, Stephen's death also highlights something else. We saw that the Holy Spirit so empowered him that he was able to die for his faith. He was able to stand and then die in the midst of persecution. And it wasn't like the Holy Spirit only just came to him at the moment, that moment. We see when we're first introduced to him that he's known as a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. So here is a man who understood that daily he needed to be filled with the regular presence of the Holy, Holy Spirit. He needed God for his daily life, his ministry, and so that when it came to times of persecution, he could stand. The Holy Spirit already completely radiated in and through him that when the Sanhedrin were accusing him, his face looked like that of an angel. His face glowed like Moses' glowed when he came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, in the presence of the Lord. So Stephen walked with the Lord in such a close way that he was able to testify to the truth of the gospel in the midst of persecution and continue to pray for his accusers in the midst of being rocks of rocks being hurled at him. I don't this is amazing. I read this story and I think, how on earth would I be able to do that? I don't know if I could stand there and let people throw rocks at me as I proclaimed my faith. And even then to go and pray for those people who were doing that to me. But this is the key. Stephen didn't do it on his own. In his own human strength, he spent his life in the presence of God. He had that deep relationship with God and he knew that deep pleasure that only God's presence offers. And he knew it in a way that he, it didn't matter to him if he got killed for the gospel. And that power of the Holy Spirit that was with him was enabled him, would enable him to go through that experience. In the middle of a crisis, a huge crisis, the power of the Holy Spirit sustained him. And it didn't turn out all roses, did it? He didn't live. But he died knowing the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In such a powerful way, he saw a vision of Jesus standing there with God, ready to welcome him into the kingdom of his new life. And there are actually many stories of people, both in scripture and through scripture, um, sorry, through history, who've had this relationship with God in such a way that it has sustained them through tough times as well, even to the point of death. Many of us will have read and heard stories of martyrs in early church history, um, right up until the modern day, which we're going to talk about shortly, but one in particular stood out to me in the middle of my research this week. (coughs) There are a couple of young missionaries in China martyred in their late 20s. Late 20s! That's like, I was going to say half my age, not quite. Um, There are some people here who are in their late 20s. And um, they were martyred, as I said, they were in China. um, And they were famous for saying, just before they died, take away everything I have, but do not take away the sweetness of walking and talking with the King of Glory. And another martyr many centuries earlier who was being burned at the stake for his faith started smiling amidst it all. And his annoyed persecutor said, what on earth could you possibly be smiling about? And the martyr replied, I saw the glory of God 
and I'm glad. Now, these are two lots of people who, like Stephen, knew God intimately enough and, and had invited God's Holy Spirit's presence to fill them so much that even death, nothing could rob them of that presence that they found and that joy that they found in God's presence. So leading on from that, the second question now for us is, are we actively seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit now in an ongoing way, not only for our only everyday lives, but so that when times of persecution and suffering come, we will be able to stand firm in our faith? Because I've got to say, if we aren't, there is no way we can stand in the midst of persecution. It's just not humanly possible. And I'm not just talking about death. It might be um, uh, minor persecution or minor suffering, like simply standing against abortion, or standing against sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, or, or standing against euthanasia. We all know the tolerant culture that we are a part of, sorry, the intolerant culture that we're in the midst of, a culture that apparently detests hate speech and intolerance, but which itself is completely intolerant to conservative Christian morals and values which Christ has called us to live by. We will be persecuted. Probably those of us who are leading churches will be persecuted. It will be easier to stay quiet. It will be easier for me not to talk about this today. (laughs) But God tells us to go into the world, take his good news and truth with us. Yes, we'll be mocked. Yes, we'll be persecuted. We'll be given names. We'll be called phobes for anything and everything. Um, But God says that he is with us in the midst of it all, and he gives us that power to carry on in his name. If we don't go in the power of his name, with his Holy Spirit, we're just going to find it too hard. We'll simply walk away from our faith. We'll see suffering from persecution as something to be avoided. And we'll believe what the world says. We will seek shallow pleasure instead and we'll be deeply disappointed at the end of it all. Seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit goes hand in hand with developing that relationship with God. And as we spend time with him, as we are filled with his presence, um, we are filled with his presence and we want to spend more time with him. And it's kind of this cycle. As we spend more time with him, the more we want to spend time with him. And it's It's this beautiful pleasure that um, is such a gift. Because scripture, if it tells us we will face trials, suffering and pain, then we really need to have that Holy Spirit to face these trials. So I've talked a lot about how the Holy Spirit empowers us to perform signs and wonders, but not a lot about the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain us in times of difficulty. So those are the first two questions. Are we prepared for the suffering? Are we prepared for persecution? Are we actively seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit now in an ongoing way? And what's the third? The third is a litmus test for the first two. Is our faith worth dying for? Is our faith worth, worth, worth being persecuted? I told you these weren't easy questions. Scripture tells us in many places that we're either in or we're out. We're either alive in our faith or we're not. We're a friend of God or a friend of the world. There is not a middle ground. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no doing both. Lukewarm is not an option. And there are many places in Scripture that warns us against being lukewarm in our faith. How strong is your faith? How deeply are you pursuing God as your Lord and Saviour? Now please understand that this isn't me imploring you to ask this out of a sense of, well, you should because you're a Christian. 
but it is honestly the only way to find that deep pleasure in life. It is the only way to get through life. It is the only way to experience God in an incredibly special way that as we go through suffering in times of persecution, God speaks to us in a really special way. I remember I went through a very dark time when I was living in Canada um, at Bible College. It must have been about eight years ago. I had a massive car crash and wrote some off someone else's car. I lost my passport that same week. I was dreadfully homesick. I had a massive Old Testament exam and my computer crashed and I was not given an extension. What else happened? Um, I had a passive-aggressive Canadian flatmate blow me up for something completely pathetic and I crumble when I am yelled at by someone I don't really know very well. And I was staring down the barrel of a lawsuit to do with the car crash. I'd only been in the country for three months at that point. And at the same time all of this was happening, my theological understanding about God and the Bible were being questioned, which was actually a good thing and actually something God needed to do with me. Um, But it was hard having everything else happen at the same time. I was still single, had not got married at 21 like I was planning, and I had had my heart broken several times. I was a poor student, and then on top of all of that, I got depression. It was a pretty bad time. There were definitely periods of those six months where I wondered where was God. There were days in my darkest time when I certainly had no idea where God was. And I had to actually say, God, where are you? I'm at a Bible college and I'm trying to write papers on you. Where the heck are you? Sometimes I got an answer and sometimes I didn't. But before that time, I had experienced the power of God in my life to such a degree that it was actually a lifeline for me. So when I was in the midst of all of that, I clung on to that memory. And it was a huge gift. And as I healed and God brought me through that time, God spoke to me in a way that I have never actually been able to experience since. It's almost like God has this megaphone and you can hear him so clearly when you're in the midst of suffering. It's almost like a, a way of speaking and a way of being with us as his people that he reserves for when we really need it. And it was a huge gift. And... Um, I've actually sometimes even wanted to go through a hard time again in that kind of magnitude, just so I can experience that special presence of the Lord with me. And it's easy to ask in the midst of suffering, why aren't you doing anything, God? Why are you not relieving me from this? Why aren't you fixing for this? And you know what? There are so many questions we can't answer, and I'm not going to pretend to. But what I can say is that I know that God never asks us to go through something that we can't handle without his presence. And in the midst of those hard times, he often offers us the most amazing gift of his presence in a unique way. And it's also important to understand that God suffers alongside with us. He sits there and he weeps with us. He feels our pain. If you think about when Saul was confronted by God on the road to Damascus, Saul was persecuting the church And what does God say? Why are you persecuting me? God felt the pain that Paul was inflicting on the people of his church. Not only is God in here in the midst with us, but he gives us what we need to get through it. And we saw that with Stephen. Because the only way that Stephen could possibly go through what he did was because he had God's presence with him and he knew God's presence with him. And he received that amazing vision of God welcoming him with his open arms. 
And he was the first martyr of the faith. And Paul too speaks about the presence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 on the life of the Spirit. And the second half of that chapter is devoted to the experience of the Spirit amidst our suffering. He declares that the Spirit is there with us, helping us, interceding with us. That's such a beautiful gift. So as we draw to a close today, it's important to see that the story of Stephen was used by God in a really powerful way to advance the kingdom um, and extend the church. And it's a brilliant example of God taking something that had been intended for evil and bringing something good out of it. The Jewish leaders had intended to shut down the church. They thought that by stoning Stephen, they were going to silence them. And you know what? Persecution surely did follow, so much so that the church was scattered to Judea and Samaria. But this was actually a fulfilment of the Great Commission. Jesus said in Acts 1 before he ascended, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And many scholars argue that Stephen's death was one of the greatest events in church history because it catapulted missionaries beyond Jerusalem that were probably quite comfortable there to that point, and it sent them into Judea and Samaria and then the rest of the world. And as you track through the book of Acts, um, we see that the church starts in Jerusalem, then by chapter 8 it moves to Judea and Samaria, then by chapter 9 the church starts extending beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles, and then into the rest of the known world. In Acts 12, we see the gospel going to Asia and Europe and Rome. So God makes sure his word is fulfilled. He takes what was intended for evil and he turns it into good to further the gospel. A well-known saying amongst the church historians is that the blood of martyrs was the seed of the church. What was intended to squash individuals in a movement spurred the church on. In the face of persecution, it grew. And it certainly weeded out the lukewarm Christians, doesn't it? Because it's too risky to be a Christian if you don't really mean it. And we've seen this pattern throughout history. Communist China, fascist Russia, the anti-Semitic movement in Nazi Germany. There's so many Christians were persecuted. Instead of squashing the Christian church, the church exploded. The underground church in China just went through this exponential growth. I'm sure, Jenny, you would know a lot, a lot about yeah, that. Yeah, it's actually they're still being persecuted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this is my next point. Martyrdom is still very alive today. Some authorities claim that more Christians have died for their faith in the last century than all the other centuries put together. And without diving into this topic, because um, you've probably heard enough of me, it's obvious to see that the call to walk with, with Christ involves persecution and suffering. But it also, and this is the most important bit, also comes with an amazing promise of God's deep presence which is deeper than any pleasure you'll ever find anywhere else. So as I close, let's just look again at Paul's letter to the Philippians. He agonises over the church, praying that they might find the fullness of life in Christ. And this is what Graham and I and the elders pray for you guys too, and everyone who we come into contact with. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in the sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I had already obtained all of this or had already arrived at my goal, but I pressed on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus. Now Stephen literally lived this passage out, didn't he? He was dead to himself and fully alive in Christ. And we need to be fully alive in Christ too. Honestly, the only way. It's the only way we can endure the suffering and persecution that life throws at us. But even greater, it's the only way we will genuinely find true and lasting pleasure. St. Augustine, one of the biggest hedonists of the day, was brought to his knees as he realised how empty his life actually was. The pursuit of worldly pleasures only left him hollow. He finds Christ and becomes one of the most influential writers of his day. And his words still speak to us, and I'm going to close with this quote from him. The saying, I have everything, is a terrible saying when everything does not include the living God. Let's pray. Father, we've covered a lot of ground and we've had some hard-hitting questions as we have looked at this passage. But Lord, you know um, where we're at. And you desire for us to know that deep, flourishing life in you that only you can offer. Lord, you are totally for us. You love us and you desire us to find that deepest pleasure in you that only you can offer and that the world cannot satisfy. Lord, only your presence, only through the power of your Holy Spirit can we possibly hope to live this life in a way you've called us to. So Father, we ask that whatever that is for us in our lives, whether it's spending 10 minutes each day asking for your presence, or whether it's spending 5 minutes praying um, as we drive to work, or whatever it is, Lord, would you show us how we can ask these questions of ourselves and help us to seek that pleasure that only you can satisfy. Thank you, Father. Amen.